Well, good afternoon. I'm sorry. I, I apologize. I'm, it's going to take me a minute to uh, adjust uh, to the handheld here. I had shoulder surgery uh, about a month and a half ago, a rotator cuff. Some of you have been there. I just got out of sling. and So I'm, I'm getting adjusted back to being able to use this hand when I preach and when I talk again, but I have to be careful with it. Uh, so now this one's tied down, and in a minute I've got to hold this clicker. So I, I don't know how I'm gonna uh, how I'm gonna be able to do this. Um, thank you for being here. Thank you for carving out the time uh, to do something like this and to uh, let us be a part of your journey. Um, I know sometimes when um, you know you you listen to seminary professors talk. Um, you know, you, you wonder sometimes, I know I did as a pastor and, and as, a, as a student sometimes, wonder, okay, do they know what I'm going through? Do they know what this is about? And, uh, um, and I, I probably don't entirely just because I've never been in your shoes, but I have had the privilege to serve as a senior pastor uh, for over 20 years in four different churches from, uh, uh, you know, sizes of a church plant. The first church I pastored was a church plant all the way to a, a larger church in the state of Colorado. Uh, in all of those journeys, uh, I've had wonderful relationships with uh, uh, the directors of missions, mission strategists, um, and have been grateful to God for their leadership and their shepherding of my own life and encouragement to me, their wisdom. Uh, and so I have a great, uh, great appreciation for what you do and very excited about uh, the plans uh, that are on the table. Uh, I wanted to start with a, just a little word of a testimony, uh, just so you'll know uh, of another aspect of my appreciation. Um, when I went to Southwestern Seminary in the mid-80s as a master's student, uh, probably like all uh, seminary students, I... Uh, you know, knew that I was God's gift uh, to the Southern Baptist Convention, if not the kingdom at large, and uh, um, much less the Tarrant Baptist Association. Uh, that is the association that his uh, offices are still on the campus of Southwestern Seminary. Uh, then, and I don't know exactly how it is now, but then the la uh, second largest association in our denomination. And so, um, I, I wanted to serve on a church staff, and so I made an appointment with the then director of missions there. I uh, took, got my resume fixed up. I took uh, took it with me to the appointment. I remember sitting in his office, and uh, it was a pretty pretty big office. Uh, and uh, we had some small talk, and and then you know he asked me what can I do for you. And I said, well, I just got here, got here, go to seminary, and I'd like to serve on a church staff. And here's my resume. He didn't even open the folder. Um, he, he looked at me. And he looked at me for a moment, and then he got up and he said, uh, "Come here, I want to show you something." And he just went over to the other side of his office, where I hadn't noticed before, but along uh, the, this entire wall were filing cabinets. Now, some of you don't even know what those are, but we used to put paper in them and stuff. You know, we don't use them, but there's mid '80s now. You know, we filing cabinets. I mean, just one right after another on this. And he said, "You see these filing, filing cabinets right here?" So, yes, sir. He said, "You know what's in here?" And I said, "No, what?" He said, "These filing cabinets are filled with resumes of guys just like you." And then he walked back over and he sat down behind his desk. I sat down in the chair on the other side, and he said. He said, Jim, he said, I want to tell you how to find a staff position. He said, you go join a local church and you start winning people to Jesus. 
and you start walking the aisle on Sunday morning with those people you have led to Jesus, and he said, they'll put you on staff. And you know, that's exactly what happened. Uh, my wife and I joined a church in Arlington, Texas. I, you know, I, I, I knew that we needed to be sharing the gospel, and we were doing that. And there was somebody else that just told me, look, this is how you get on the staff of a church. And so we, we went into this area that, that didn't have very many churches, but it's a rapidly growing area. We started just going door to door and sharing the gospel. And, and I had the opportunity to lead a few folks to the Lord. I did exactly what he said, introduced to my pastor, be able to walk the aisle with some of them and, and help them to get connected with the church. And one day I got a phone call from my pastor. He said, hey, I want you to come by and see me. Went by uh, to see him and he said, look, he said, I don't have any money. We don't have any money for a new staff position. He said, but he said, if you will come on staff as minister of evangelism, he said, we'll pay you $100 a week if you'll just go visit uh, new move-ins. And, and so I got my first staff position as a seminary student uh, under the counsel of a wise, godly director of mission. But the story didn't stop there. Um, we began to visit new move-ins in this rapidly growing area, and uh, we started a home Bible study. And in, in a year and a half, we saw 17 people come to know Christ. And so our church is just looking at that. You know, none of us really had a plan for this thing. And said, you know, what do we do next? Well, rapidly growing area, not many churches. We got 17 people here. Let's start a church. Well, who's going to lead the church? Oh, well, Shaddix, you've been leading the Bible study. Why don't you, 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 you plant the church? And that's how I, I, that's how I became a pastor. I, I didn't know what I was doing in church planting. I'd never read a book on church planting, never been to a conference on it, never taken a course on it, but all of a sudden I was a church planner. And I ended up pastoring that church for eight and a half years. I got the experience of buying land, building a building, uh, shepherding a people, all going back to the wise counsel of a director of missions. Uh, who knew that we're not on the planet uh, to be in staff positions, but we're on the planet to make disciples. And I will forever, forever be grateful uh, for that brother for shepherding me early in my, uh, in my ministry days. And so uh, don't ever underestimate the kind of influence uh, you're having, whether it's with seminary students, which probably most of you don't encounter all the time, or just young preachers, uh, leaders, pastors, you know, in the associations that you lead. My assignment uh, this afternoon is to just talk to you a little bit about um, a vision, developing a vision for uh, disciple making. We've just got 45 minutes before our next break is scheduled, and so I'm going to need to talk real fast. But I want to begin by reading uh, just a, a, a couple of verses from Mark chapter 3. If you don't have your Bible close to you uh, or can't turn one on on a device, I, I know you're familiar with these verses. Um, so let me read to you Mark chapter 3, uh, verses 13 and 14. This is what the Word of the Lord says into the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Mark writes, and, and he, Jesus, and Jesus went up on the mountain, and he called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach. One of the most interesting things to me in the New Testament is 
the fact that there is something that begins right here that ultimately culminates in Jesus' ministry. Right before he checked out, when he gave these 12 uh, minus 1, he gave these 12 this thing we refer to as the Great Commission. Our banner, the reason that we exist, the mission that we're on, we, we, we know this. But Jesus gave that Great Commission to those 11 guys. The thing that fascinates me about that is from all of the gospel accounts, it seems that when Jesus gave the Great Commission, those 11 guys were the only people present. Now, now I realize we can't be sure, but you just look at the gospel records, and it, it just, you know, it seems when he gave that, there were only 11 guys beside himself present. And, and, and that, I, I don't know what to do with that. Or at least I didn't at first. Because I'm trying to process, all right, now wait a second. This is the banner we wave. This is the thing we preach. We scream it. We yell it. We put it on T-shirts. We've got it on screensavers on our computer. We memorize uh, Matthew 28, you know, 18 through 20. Th this is, these are our marching, these are the marching orders of the church, aren't they? And, they? and they really are. But if that's the case, why? Why, why would Jesus only have said that to 11 guys. I mean, I, you know, I'm thinking, gosh, they at least could have sent word out throughout Galilee, right? I mean, they could have, you know, gone to the cities there and, you know, Capernaum and, you know, and, and in places across the sea and said, hey, you know, on, on this day over here, Jesus is going to be on the mount over here and we're going to gather with him. He's got some big stuff to share. I mean, you think that at least by word of mouth, I know they couldn't tweet it out, post it on Facebook or, you know, do do anything, put it on, a, on television. But, you know, th at least in Galilee, right? I mean, there were some other believers there. There were people that had come to know Christ. At least they, they could have gathered there. Why? Why at a starting point like this, when he called 12 to himself, lost one of those, why, when he gave the most important words for the mission of the church until he would return, why only 11 guys? Well, brothers, I would submit to you that the answer to that question really lies at the heart of developing a strategy or a vision for disciple making in our churches today. And I just want to go ahead and give you a, you know, I, I want to make a disclaimer up front before I, I you know, I, I walk you through what I want to say. I am, I am not going to tell you anything you don't already know because I don't have a new plan for developing a vision for disciple making outside the plan that Jesus followed. Uh, and, and quite honestly, I don't think we, we need a new one. I, I, I am for strategizing and planning. I think we need to do that in our churches, in our associations. But there are some things that we can't improve upon. And I'm convinced, though, that there are also some things that we all know. When we put our heads on our pillows at night, we know these things but because of the busyness of our world, because of the pressure we're under, because of our bent toward pragmatism and our feeling like we do have to put things into a strategy or a vision, sometimes we get away from them. And all of us know sometimes we just need to be reminded, look, we, we can't improve on this.
Now, what I want you to think about, though, is that, you know, that, that journey from here in Mark chapter 3 to Matthew 28 or Mark 16 or wherever you want to go to find it, even Acts 1, that, that, that moment when, when Jesus gave the Great Commission. Why? Why, when he could, could have included a lot more people, why did he only give those words? Why did he only give those words to 11 guys? I would submit to you the reason is, is because he knew he had prepared 11 guys to receive it and, and, and to own it. And by the way, 2,000 years later, you and I are sitting here on a Thursday afternoon on the campus of a seminary because it worked. And you're in the role that you're in because it worked. And I'm in the role that I'm in because it worked. But you see, the problem is, the problem is, is if we don't connect Mark 4 with the times that, G or Mark 3, the times that Jesus gave the Great Commission and realize what he intentionally did between those two periods, we will miss the reality that Jesus understood something that you know and I know. And that is that every believer in Jesus Christ is not ready to receive the Great Commission. Now, you did not hear me say that the Great Commission was not for every believer. I just simply said that everybody you preach to and everybody you shepherd in your church isn't ready to own it. If they were, every time you preached a sermon on it, people would be out. They would be living out the gospel. The Great Commission would be influencing the way they look at their marriages, the way that they look at their families, the way they, they spend their money, the way they go to work every day. They, it, it, would, it would influence everything they do. And I want you to keep that in mind because that's what I'm talking about when I talk about disciple making. I'm not talking about just helping people just know the Bible more, memorize more scripture, pray together, be accountable. All those things are important, but that's not what a New Testament disciple is. Ultimately, a New Testament disciple is one whose life is permeated by the Great Commission because that's why we've been left on the planet. And you preach it, you sing it, you yell it, you say it's the marching orders of the church, but you know that the percentage of people listening to you that receive it, they learn it, they know it, their lives are affected by it, they go home and say, this is why I'm on the planet, this is why I'm raising a family, this is why I'm an accountant, this is why I'm a housewife, this is why I do what I do. You know, the, Regardless of how I put bread on my table, as a believer in Christ, this is why I've been left on the planet. Now you think about the percentage of people you have in your church that you're a member of and the percentage of people in the churches in your association that really, really get that. Now, does that mean we shouldn't tell them these are your marching orders? No. Does it mean it's not for them? No, it, it is for them. But let me tell you something else it does mean, and that is we have to understand that Jesus spent three years of his life getting 12 guys ready to receive those words to where they owned it and it gripped them. And one of those 12 didn't make it. But 11 of them, 11 of them got it. And I am convinced that if we're going to have a vision for disciple-making, we're simply going to have to get back 
to the realization that what we have to do is make sure that we are intentional about moving people from the place that these guys were at in Mark chapter 3 to the place that they were on that mountain before Jesus ascended when he gave them the Great Commission and they bought it. They received it. And, and we have to think, what does it take to move somebody from that place uh, to that that mountain right there. And so that's what I want you to, to think with me uh, a, a little bit. I don't know which one am I supposed to be hitting, Anna? <laughs> am I hitting the wrong? There we go. There we go. I'm sorry. You're fine. I apologize. <laughs> All right, so what I want to do real quick, and like I said, I've got to talk real fast and uh, be glad to make this available to any of you that want to take it home, process it a little bit more. Oh, actually, you don't need to because it's all actually in print there in your, um, uh, in, in your uh, conference guide there. So you, you have all of this so we can move through it really quick. just want to give you a few basic principles and kind of, kind of give you a picture of this and then uh, just talk a little bit about some best practices for developing this vision for disciple-making that really is nothing new but really goes back to what Jesus did and all of us know in our heart of hearts uh, is what we need to do. First of all, that's really small up there so you can read it in your pamphlet there. Disciple making takes place on multiple levels. I'm a professor of preaching. Uh, you know, first and foremost, I'm a preacher, and at heart, I'm a pastor. If I were writing the script, I would be the pastor of a local church today, but I know God has given me an assignment for this season of my life to invest in other pastors. But one of the, one of the things that, that I think a lot of pastors and preachers don't realize is that their preaching is not the only aspect of disciple-making. So I want you to look at that diagram that there. It's been helpful for me to think about Jesus' disciple-making strategy uh, from the standpoint of concentric circles. And by the way, this is... Um uh, you know, this can be paralleled, I think, to any local church, most, most Southern Baptist uh, local church ministries. I, I want you to notice this. I'm going to start on the outside with the largest circle, and that's the crowds, okay? That, uh, you know, Jesus preached to the crowds. Uh, he, crowds gathered, and he would communicate the gospel uh, to them. Uh, he didn't neglect the crowds. Sometimes he had to steal away from them, but he spoke to the crowds. In, in the next inner circle there, I'm just going to call that the community. Uh, uh, now, these are my terms. You can put whatever terms you are. But I think Jesus had smaller groups of people that he ministered to. I don't know. This group right here might be the 72 that he sent out. It might be the people that uh, he called away from the crowd up on the mount to give the Sermon on the Mount uh, to. We look in the Gospels. We will see a number of times where there was a, a, a group that was called away that Jesus ministered to that wasn't just a y'all come. It wasn't everybody. But then you move in from there, and I'm going to call this group the core. Uh, there were more intimate circles in Jesus' ministry. These were where we would find the Marys and the Marthas of the world and the Lazaruses and, and individuals like that that Jesus spent you know, a little bit more time to and seemed to have a, a little bit deeper relationship. But then I want you to come in because you might think, well, the core is the core. That's the center. But I, I, I don't think it is. I I think there was another group. There was another group that that he invested a little bit more in, no, a lot more in, and he had a particular purpose for us. And I'm just going to call those the commissioned. And, and I'm referring in Jesus' ministry to those 11 guys. 
that he poured into to the point that when he gave them the great commission before he ascended, it took, it stuck. Why? Because he had prepared them for it. Now, if you think about this, you can see different levels of ministry in the local church. The crowds, that's primarily what we're about, isn't it? You know, this is when everybody gathers. Most important thing most of us think we do is that Sunday morning gathering or Saturday night, whenever, you know, that happens in the local church where everybody comes. But what we don't realize is sometimes we think that's what we want for every everything we do. Because that is a that is a y'all come. We want everybody involved, no holes barred, everybody gets to play, everybody come. But if we're not careful, what we do is we take that same strategy, we take that same idea, and we impress it upon everything. And I just want to fast forward a little bit and say to you, I don't think that we can do that with true disciple making. Why? Because everybody's not ready for it. Jesus didn't do it. He, he didn't come to the crowd and say, hey, everybody wants to be in a discipleship group. Meet me over here after the service today. He called 12 guys out and he said, I want you to come with me. And he didn't make a big deal out of it. You know, he just prayed through it and he called them out. And those were the guys that he invested in. But along the way, as I said, I think there's community that we minister to. This may be your Wednesday night, Sunday night crowd in a local church, a little bit more committed. It's not as big as Sunday morning. These folks are probably a little bit more in as far as what's going on in the church but then but then let's move to the core okay these are the tithers these are the people that are there every time the doors are open they they lead the the committees they're chairmen of the deacons they're you know they're they're the the people that you can count on to always be there but here's what i want to ask you if you just think with me right now for a moment about the people who fit into that category in the church you're in right now, that we would most often call the core, the people that are the givers, they are always there, they support you as, 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 as a minister, and I'm, I'm, I know some of you are pastors, and most of you have been pastors if you're not now, so put yourself in the, you know, in, in the place of a pastor. They, they, they support you. These are the people that have, you know, they, they've been there a while. They invested in this deal. That group of people that you're thinking about right now, I want, you, I want to ask you a question. How many of them, how many of them are really living out the Great Commission. How many of them, the gospel, the gospel is so gripped their lives. I'm not saying they're not a good Christian or, or, or they're not faithful. I'm just asking, how many of them, the gospel has gripped them to the point that, that number one, they have received it. Number two, they understand it. And number three, they understand it to the point they could articulate it. If you sat down with them right now and said, just explain the gospel to me, that they could, they could give you a good, theologically robust explanation of the gospel. Not only they articulate it, but number four, they're living it out. And they look at everything that they're, they look at their marriage through the lens of the gospel. They look at their vocation through the lens of the gospel. They look at, 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 at how they interpret what's going on in culture through the lens of the gospel. And then number five, they are actively 
leveraging everything in their lives to share it with the most number of people that they can. How many of the people in the core of most of our churches would fit into that category? Now, I simply ask you that question to get you to think with me about the fact that there's still another place we've got to lead people to. There's still another place that we've got to get them to, not just because they're the faithful givers and they're always there and they've been there a long time and they're the supporters of the pastor and all of those kind of things. Is the gospel gripping their lives to the point that this is what they live for? They get up in the morning being reminded about the fact that this is why they're on the planet. This is what they've been left to do. And what, what I, I want you to think about is if we don't understand these different manifestations of the ministry of Jesus, we'll never be intentional about moving people to the place of being commissioned. And I'm not saying just getting the Great Commission. I'm talking about them getting it and owning it. So number two, and, and I've already said it, develop uh, disciple-making involves moving people, and here's the operative word, intentionally, from the crowds to the commission. If we're going to have a vision for disciple-making the way Jesus did disciple-making, then we're going to have to remember that he not only ministered to the people that were the crowds, but he had an intentional plan about moving some of those people, maybe through a process like this, but ultimately getting to the point that they were ready to own the Great Commission. So if you look back at that, if you look back at those concentric circles, the crowd, the outermost circle, these are the worship services. And you know what, brothers and sisters, excuse me, I said brothers a while ago. Just uh, uh, you, you know what, beloved, most of us as preachers, a lot of times that's where we think, that's where we think disciple making takes place. And for some preachers, some pastors, many in your association, no doubt, they limit their involvement in disciple-making to the preaching event. Now, you're, you're listening to a preaching guy here, okay? So I want you to hear a preaching guy say, preaching is a part of disciple-making, but it's only one part of it. If we're going to have a vision and we're going to develop strategies based upon that, that, that vision, then we're going to have to understand that Jesus didn't limit his disciple-making efforts to the times that he was preaching to the crowds. But he had an intentional, he was on an intentional mission to take some, to take some to the place that he knew that when it was time for him to check out, they would own this gospel to the point they would keep this thing going. And we know it worked. We know it worked. But why then? Why then do we spend much of our time and energy in our churches on a y'all come program? We want everybody to be a part of everything. And so we want everybody to sign up and be a part why? Because we've bought into a Western mindset of commercialism. Bigger is better. And the more people we can get to buy in, the better off we're going to be. Now, you're not hearing me say that we don't want more people to buy in. But you are hearing me say if we're going to get them to the place where they're ready 
to let the Great Commission grip them and the gospel to own them and permeate their life, we're going to have to be intentional about doing it like Jesus did. So we've got to intentionally move people. Number three, disciple making is most effective, most effectively done, excuse me for the misspelling, through life-on-life reproduction, not programs. So there's the big balloon buster right there. Because most of the time, and I'm not saying that's why you came, you may not even have known we were going to address this subject. But you're going to deal with this because you're going to go to more conferences. You're going to watch more podcasts. You're going to uh, mobilize your pastors to, you know, to be a part of bigger events. And we, we are, and, and we as Southern Baptists are, all, of all people, most, most pragmatic, are we not? And consequently, what do we do? We are looking for a program. We're looking for a system. We're looking for a package. And most of the time, the package we're looking for is a y'all come package. Something we can take back and we can get all of our people involved in. I just want to take you back to Jesus' intentionality of moving those 12 guys from the crowd to be the commissioned. He did it intentionally through life on life, not programs. And brothers and sisters, I... I got nothing new for you. I can't give you a substitute for that. I can't give you a shortcut. There is no app. There is no website. There is no program that is going to close the gap of what it takes to do life-on-life disciple-making. That's not a program. I'll probably say this again in the panel because it, it relates to one of the questions, but let me just go ahead and tell you, my last senior pastor, it was Riverside Baptist Church in Denver, Colorado. It's the largest church that I pastored. We were in downtown Denver. Riverside had been the flagship church in Colorado. It's not the largest church anymore. It used to be, but it's not anymore, but still by virtue of its location and its its history still is is somewhat of a flagship church for Baptists in the state of Colorado. Uh if Jim Shaddix has a legacy at Riverside Baptist Church, it wasn't his preaching. In fact, it was something, and I want you to hear this, that was never, ever once announced from the pulpit. It never showed up on a screen. It never showed up in a worship guide. Never was posted on the web- website. I would say to you, if there's any investment that, by God's grace, I made at Riverside Baptist Church... It was something that was never, ever a program. And there's nothing that thrills me more today than to get a text or a phone call from a brother in that church who says, hey, I'm starting to take a couple of new guys on a discipleship journey. Pray for me. We didn't do it perfectly. I'm not telling you all of those have lasted. All of Jesus didn't even last. All right? But I'm telling you that if we're going to develop a vision for disciple-making, we're, we're going to have to get back to understanding we can't program this thing and we can't stand up and say, y'all come. Because everybody is not ready for what they think they're signing up for. Okay. Remember, what we're talking about here is developing leaders. Now, I want you to listen to me. That's kind of a catchphrase. Let developing leaders, that's what we're about. And that's what you're about as directors. But let me remind you, 
as associational mission strategist, your primary role is not just to develop leaders in your association that will develop leaders in their churches. Your primary role is to develop leaders who are leading in advancing the Great Commission and taking the gospel to the nation. We're not just about leadership. We're about a particular kind of leadership with a, you know, leadership involves not only fellowship, it involves a goal. You're going somewhere, right? Well, it doesn't matter how many skills you give somebody in leadership. If you, if you don't help them as a pastor or as a member of one of those churches to understand that where they are going and where they are leading people to is to own the gospel while they are on this planet. And that the reason they've been left here is for that gospel to permeate everything they do and for them to tell as many people about it as they possibly can. We haven't led people completely until we lead them to that place right there. That, that's what leadership development is about. Disciple making most effectively done through life-on-life -life reproduction, not uh, with programs. Disciple making must involve the propagation of the gospel. I, I'm not going to camp here because I've already said it. You see the bullets listed under that. I, I just want to repeat something that I, I said a minute ago, and that is, you know, ju just meeting at Starbucks once a week with a group of men and memorizing scripture and praying together and holding one another accountable and, and, and reading our Bible daily, that is not the end of disciple making. But we have defined it that way. And, and we think if we get people in groups and get in the doing that, they're meeting once a week and they're, they're doing those things, then they are, they are being discipled. I would just simply submit to you that if we don't lead people to the place where this gospel so grips them that they begin to approach every day of their lives with an understanding of why they're left on the planet, we've not discipled them fully. Paul talked about, I think, even though he didn't use these terms exactly, I think in 2 Timothy 1 and 2, he, he kind of painted the picture of a relay race, and that relay race involved a baton, a particular thing that was being passed from one runner to the next. He said, my ancestors gave it to me. I gave it to your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and or your mother uh, Lois, your, your, your mother Eunice, your grandmother, I, you, you, you know who I'm talking about. Uh, I gave it to them, and they gave it to you, Timothy. I'm confident you got it. Then he gets over there to chapter 2, and he says, now you find some faithful men, the things you've heard from me among many witnesses. What was he talking about? Well, he was talking about what he was talking about in verse in chapter 1. He mentioned the gospel. He, he summarized the gospel. He called it the pattern of sound words. He referred to it as the good deposit. You see, Paul saw disciple-making as a relay race of passing something from one generation to the next. And that something is the gospel. We haven't discipled people. We haven't made a disciple until they are actively involved in passing that baton on to others. And so that involves being prepared so that they can give an answer to any man that asked them. They, they know the gospel. They can articulate it. It means proclaiming it, sharing it intentionally with everybody that they possibly can. But it also means preserving it. And that is passing it from one generation. In other words, it, 
It, it involves reproduction. It involves them turning around doing the same thing that someone has done for them. That is, that's what we have a responsibility to do. I, 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 you know, you, you can pick up any number of discipleship curriculum and you can find a lot of the same things. You know, Bible reading, scripture memorization, prayer, all the spiritual disciplines. But it's interesting sometimes how many of them overlook this reality of the stewardship of the gospel. God has ordained that the gospel be transmitted from one generation to another, not by a website, not by a flash drive or a jump drive, not through the cloud, but by life-on-life life investment that involves the passing of the baton of the gospel. Uh, all right, before I jump into some best practices, and I may, if you have a question that relates to something we'll get to, I may say, hang on with that just a second, but let me see. We've got about 15 minutes left. I want to cover this and give you an opportunity to ask questions after this, but let me see if there are any questions right now, anything I've said, because I know I've talked fast and we covered a lot of ground. Does it make sense what I'm saying? Does it make sense? All right. Yeah, and that's getting down to another level, you know, that obviously could be a whole other conference. Yeah, there, you know, all of us know, and thank you for bringing that up, you know, that there was an even different level. But I don't think it was a different agenda with regard to, you know, what he was doing with all 12 of them, you know. They all 12 were given the Great Commission, including those three in the inner circle. I think even with a group the size of 12, there was still going to be the need for some leadership and somebody to, you know, to run point after he was already gone. And I think that's likely what he was doing, you know, with those three. Good question. Anybody else? All right. Well, let me give you some best practices. Um, first of all, let's start where Jesus did. I read you the Mark account. Uh, in Luke's account of Jesus calling all the 12, you remember what it came on the heels of? Remember what he had done immediately before he called the twelve in Mark's, uh, I mean in Luke's gospel? He prayed all night. He went up on a mountain and he spent all night in prayer. And the scripture says he came down from there and that's when he, he called them out of the twelve. We, we, can't, we can't skip over that and we can't just put it in a booklet or on a screen as if it were just something, oh, we, we need to say this because we pray about everything. I mean, if this is true, if this was Jesus' disciple-making strategy to move people from the crowds to the commission, then this is what he was doing with those 12 apostles, was he was getting them ready to receive the great commission. Then, then, then brothers and sisters, this is, a, this is a high calling. It is a lofty enterprise, and it is a spiritual I hope you're already asking questions like, okay, when, and, and I know many of you, you, you know all this, maybe all of you, I, I, I know you get this, is not new information, be reminded, but we all, we have to start thinking, okay, well, gosh, you know, who, who, you know, Jesus chose the 12, who am I supposed to choose, how do we lead pastors to choose, listen, part of that is wrapped up right here, okay, can't give you a strategy, can't give you a, you know, a formula, uh, but the, the, there isn't any shortcut for praying all night, and if the man who was in closer communion to the Father than any of us will ever be 
Well, we're on the face of this earth. If the man who was in closer communion with the Father than any of us will ever be felt it was necessary to have some extended times in prayer, then how, how do we figure we can multitask this thing? How, 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 do we, how do we figure we can give ourselves a get-out-of-jail-free card as if we were busier than Jesus or we don't need as close a communion, especially with something like this, especially with something like the most important thing we, we could be doing, the reason we're on the planet. So pray diligently for God's help in identifying potential disciples. Teach your pastors, encourage them, help them understand there are no shortcuts here. You know, and if somebody comes, you know, somebody comes to me and says, you know what, I, I want to be a disciple maker, but look, I just, I don't pray very well, I, you know, and I just don't have the time to do that. I, I've got nothing. I don't have plan B, and you don't have plan B. But, but we try to come up with plan B. To, oh, well, you know, here, you know, here's a shortcut to this. You know, do this over there. Follow this pattern right here. And, and we begin to look for ways to, to, to get shortcuts to get to the destination. And what happens? We end up short-circuiting this thing. So make sure that we don't just assume this. Secondly, look for potential disciples within existing core and community groups. Now, let me just take you back. Well, let's see. I, I didn't put it up there. But if you go back and look at the concentric circles, just be reminded where the core and where the community is. And equate those. I, I would encourage you to maybe equate those with, like I said, your Sunday night, your Wednesday night crowd, uh, your small groups. That's where, you know, I think most of our core people, they're involved in our Sunday school classes. And, you know, whatever our small group ministry looks like, that's where we find those folks. When I'm looking for potential disciples, I'm not, I'm not looking out over the crowd on Sunday morning and saying, oh, man, there's a really nice-looking guy. He'd make a great leader. Or that, that lady really sings well. You know, she really sings well. She'd make a, she'd make a great leader. I want to move into circles of what are most of the time circles of deeper maturity. I know it's not always that way. For, for individuals that are involved at that level of the core in the community when I'm thinking about potential disciples to take on a, on a, um, um, on a, on a discipleship journey. Um, now, uh, the closest thing that I'm going to give you uh, to a program or a, uh, you know, a, a criteria is something that I develop for myself. I'm asked a lot, you know, how do you choose uh, potential people to take on a, you know, on a discipleship journey to invest in like Jesus did? I think all of us have to, you know, make sure we have in our mind what it is we're looking for. Uh, this is Jim Shaddix's uh, uh, help for that and help for himself, okay? It may not be a help for you, but I, I want to give you an idea of what, what I think about when I think about identifying people. I, you know, I'd love to get in the mind of Jesus at this point. He prayed all night. He chose those 12 individuals. I don't know that we'll ever be able to, you know, to fully mine uh, that. But when I think about that, and I think about Paul's ministry as well, there are some things that have been helpful for me. I want to look for people that are hungry. Uh, in other words, they're, they're just at a place where they desire to have more of Christ. I think those 12 Jesus, you know, called were there. 
Yeah, even even Matthew the tax collector, you know, this is a guy, you know, that I know he had to be thinking, even though he was living in sin, you know, had to be thinking about the Messiah and he's coming. And and it may not have been characteristic as much for him as those guys in the early chapters of John's gospel that were, man, could this be the guy? But I want to look for people who are who are, are wanting to know more of Christ. So they are oh shoot, sorry. They are hungry. I want to look for people who are engaged. Uh, and what I mean by that is they have more of an involvement in the church than just showing up on Sunday morning or even just being sporadic. What I'm talking about here, there, listen, there's all kinds of spiritual mentoring. You know that. We mentor at all kinds of levels. Some of you may have been involved in uh, inner city ministry where you adopted, you know, in a mentoring relationship, a teenager that, that came from a home where there wasn't a father. And there's a kind of mentoring that goes on with that. Some of you, you know, may have been in a place where you identified a woman who was real faith, faithful in, the, in your church, uh, but her husband was just lame, and he wasn't coming, he wasn't playing, he wasn't doing anything, and you decided, I'm going to invest in that guy because I want to bring him. That is legitimate spiritual mentoring, and it is an aspect, certainly, of disciple-making. But understand, that's not what I'm talking about here. If we're going to have a vision for true disciple-making, it's going to have to be the kind of disciple-making that Jesus gave himself to and that means moving people all the way to the place where this gospel grips them and they own the Great Commission. And so I'm not looking for remedial remedial mentoring at this point. I may do some of that in some other contexts, but in, in this context of disciple-making, uh, I want to look for some people who have some element of engagement. Available. I mean, this is a practical thing. They've they got to be at a place, a season in their life where they're willing and able to give time to this. Why? Because there's no shortcut to, 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 to this involving time. And so availability, reliability, people that can be trusted. I, I saw this as one of the... Uh, you know, one of the things that was on the list that the study came up with about, uh, uh, you know, a mission strategist, about you, and that is, uh, you know, that these were individuals that were trustworthy, I think the word, you know, was used there. Well, you know, that same thing was true. Uh, you know, when Paul told Timothy, he said, you find some, what kind of men? Faithful men. That you can now. What was he saying? Was he saying these guys are guys that have it all together? No, I think he was just. I think he was saying you find some guys that they take weighty matters seriously. They've demonstrated some element of trustworthiness with weighty matters in their life. Why? Because you're about to take them on a journey where you are going to entrust them with the most precious commodity in all of the universe. And so they may have demonstrated faithfulness in their marriage. It may be with their job, maybe another task in their church. But I want to find people that take weighty matters seriously and are reliable or dependable. I did it again. And then finally, teachable. They're humble and they're open to learning. Now, I want to put all these together to say something about this one. I want you to notice that there is not anything on this list that dictates that somebody has to have been a Christian a certain amount of time. You see, a brand new believer could demonstrate every one of those characteristics. And let me come on the other end of the spectrum and tell you, an 80-year-old man that's been in the church his entire life and has taught Sunday school for 40 years might not meet these qualifications because of that last one right there. 
because he's not teachable. He thinks he knows everything. And, and, and he's not humble. And so this is really, really important. Now, th this is mine and this is what I use. This may not work for you, but I do think that you and the pastors that you lead have to think through, all right, you know, what, what kinds of people have been brought through this? What, what kinds of people have moved from the crowd to community to the core and, 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 and are in a position to, for somebody to invest in them to, to take them a step further? And that's to a place of owning, uh, the Great Commission. So you, you develop your thing, but have some type of lens that you're looking through in order to be intentional about uh, choosing disciples. Number four, initiate discipleship journeys of three to four people, and I would say same gender, uh, for a minimum of one year. Gosh, I, I hate even, I, I, I hesitated when I was typing that in because it sounds so programmatic, and I tried to be, you know, leave some looseness there. Somebody may say, well, okay, well, Jesus chose 12 guys. Uh, why, why wouldn't we start there? Well, a couple of reasons. One, you're not Jesus. Uh, two, and that's, a, that's an important thing. You know, we, we know that, but it's an important thing to remember, okay? Um, I mean, he, he, he did have some things going that, that you and I can't bring to the table, all right? So we're not Jesus. Number two, and this is the big one, he lived with them 24-7 for three years. Now, if you're going to do that, and you're able to do that, then consider taking 12, all right? But you see, I'm convinced, and I'll say this again in just a moment, I'm convinced that the most difficult, challenging thing to authentic disciple-making in the Western church is this issue of doing life together. We have, we have mastered the once-a-week meeting at Starbucks, or the, the ladies gathering at the, you know, at, at, at someone's home once a week. We've, we, we have mastered that. I just simply want to remind you what you know. And that is, there was a component part of Jesus' disciple making that won't be accomplished by that model. It involved life on life investment and it took time. You say, well, Jax, you've got one year up there. You spent three years. Yeah, I, change it. Figure out how to do it. Very rarely in the disciple journeys I've been was one year enough. Right? It, it, it can take, but, but you see, there's some subjectivity to that because people are different. You, we're different. You know, the, the person that's initiating and leading this, there's all kinds of factors in there that could go in there. That's why I say appear at least one year. Don't think that this is going to be a 13-week course and you've discipled somebody. But even more than just the number of three to four and the time of once a year, it, 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 we've got to go back and pull back in this issue of we've got to figure out, we've got to figure out how to, how to do life together. This is why I think, I think there's some groups that have, you know, that they, they discovered this. I think this was part of crew or, you know, Campus Crusade, Navigators. I think this was part of their genius or their wisdom. They identified a segment of society where people were already doing life together. And what was it? College campuses, right? And they just jumped into that. And they did some of the best disciple-making that's ever been done because of that component. I can't give you any easy answers on this. I don't know. My wife and I, you know, we decided 
uh, that when we became empty nesters as we were moving for that, which, by the way, is a great gig. I mean, uh, it's just, you know, it's really tough when our daughter, our youngest, left home. I mean, it, was, it messed us up for about 15 minutes, and then we were over it, and we've been good. But listen, as great a gig as it was, both of us, it was really interesting. We got under conviction at the same time. It was one of those cool times where, you know, when she was sensing something, I was sensing. That doesn't happen all the time, but it did on this. And we just came to the place where we said, you know what? We're not going to let three bedrooms in our home sit empty while we wait for our kids to bring our grandkids back. We need to use this. And so we made a commitment at that point that we were going to have somebody live with us. We were going to take a student in, a young person in that we were going to invest in together and do life together with and let them do life with us. And that's just one way. It's not the only way. It's just one way. So many. It's one of my burdens for the military. I have a son who's a Navy SEAL. Some of you have, have children in the military, parents maybe. One of the toughest places to live out the Christian faith. But if we can get some people in the military who are gripped by the gospel and understand this, can you, can you think of a place where people do more life together than in that context? What an incredible seed bit. We've got to think about segments like that, but we can't stop there. We've got to think about ways in our local churches, in our associations, how do we... How do we reproduce the element of life on life, of doing life together? And, and I don't think there are, are any easy answers uh, to that. Uh, number five, give the group structure in order to be intentional and accountable. This is where I'm thankful for some good pieces of curriculum, some good disciple-making uh, you know, material. I haven't found perfect one yet. Uh, most of the time, I feel like I have to augment them. You will as well. But this is a place where I think some good pieces. Uh, and in my workshop tomorrow afternoon, a breakout session, I'm going to, you know, just uh, turn you on to, you know, some of the ones that have been helpful for me. But I think they need structure. I've heard people say, "Oh, well, I do disciple making organically." And, and I asked a guy, a church planner one time, it told me, I said, what does that look like? He said, well, it's just when people need me, you know, we meet at Starbucks and everything. I, Jesus did organic disciple making, but he didn't limit it to that. He had a plan, you know, and I encourage you to have a plan uh, as well. Number six, emphasize discipleship, reproduction, and gospel propagation from the start, okay? From the very beginning, I mean, when I take men on a discipleship journey, I don't spring this on them at the end and say, oh, by the way, now I want you to find, you know, two or three that you got. I tell them up front before they say yes. I say, this is what we're doing. This is the journey we're on. I think Jesus did that. Come, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men, right? It was no surprise. It's no surprise what he was doing. He told him early on that. Is number six the last one? It needs to be the last one. Number seven, work hard at finding ways for group members to do life together. I already said that. See how I get ahead of my game. Uh, get ahead of myself, all right? Okay, real quick. We're out of time. Time, I'm sorry. I don't want to cut your break you know, any shorter than I've already done. Any quick questions with this? I'll be hanging around after. Be glad to talk to you. If any of you do you know, want, to, want to ask a question just uh, you know, in a smaller group, we can do that. But any questions might be beneficial for the group. Yes, sir. Man, that's a great, if I'm understanding you crazy, is it possible to transition a, 
you know, one of our existing structure groups and, and start doing this with them? Is that what you're saying? I would just say don't do that. You need those other levels. You need community. You need core. And everybody in every one of your Sunday school classes is not ready for this. See, if you just go in and you say, let's transition our Sunday school classes, that's a y'all come thing. That's a, the crowd. We're going to do everything with the crowd. And I think that's one of the missing, missing deals there. Yeah. Good question. All right.